Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi. Get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to our Monday edition of On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined, as always, by Guy Adami. And on Mondays, Liz Young. She is the head strategist at SoFi. You also know her as EY from SoFi, welcome people. What up? What's up? All right, we got a lot to cover here, and, and EY has a hard out, as they say in the business. She's gonna, she's gonna go be on the what the the, the uh, halftime report. Is that what's going on here today? Or that's okay. correct. The investment with committee. The IC. She's gonna be no, on with the SDs from the IC. Let's be efficient here, people. We got a lot to cover. Stick around. By the way, after. Dan, before you, I know we got to be efficient. Folks can't see this because this is audio only, right? Is that true? Yes. When I said that, you have to. See, yeah, I wish you could see the look on EY's face when I said that. What the look of just complete disdain and just utter frustration. But back to you, Dan. Just you know, I just shake my head. I just shake my well, head. Well, to be very, very you, honest, you run your mouth. However, I you have want. no idea who's who's leading the IC today. Our good friend Scott Wapner is out in Los Angeles. He was breaking the news that WWE, that would be the world wide wrestling organization or association is merging with endeavors ufc had vince mcmahon on the cnbc this morning so let's see who the fill-in is we got we got a lot to go over here and before i just want to tease guy and i had a great conversation with caleb silver he is the editor-in-chief of investopedia and that's coming on after this quick conversation all right guys let's hit it there's a lot going on this morning we had that kind of melt up into quarter end last week we talked a lot about how i think all of us were a bit confused by the price action given 
what we think is going to come out during Q1 earnings season that starts about two weeks from now with the banks. We have Mike Wilson, our friend. He is the head strategist and CIO over at Morgan Stanley. He's doubling down on his bearish call. We're going to get to all that. But, Guy, we got to talk about, and we spent some time on our pod, on our Friday pod on, on the tape, talking about crude oil ticking up, talking about gas at the pump ticking up, talking about maybe some of those inflationary readings that we had seen come down pretty hard over the last six months, maybe plateauing a little bit at a lower level. And now this OPEC plus move to surprisingly cut supply here is really interesting, sending crude oil up, sending crude stocks up. And should this be sending worries for economists, strategists, investors that we're going to see inflation pick back up? I see crude up six and a half percent. I see the OIH up more than 7%. The XLE, large integrated, up 5%. These are some massive moves here, Guy. They are. And if Danny Moses was here, he would break into song channeling his best Neil Diamond and would get into love, and, love on the Rocks. Ain't no surprise because I will tell you, as much as it may have surprised the market, it didn't doesn't really come as much surprise to me. And I'm not trying to be glib here or some sort of prognosticator, but they are not our friends. And as crude oil went below 70, you know, one of the apprehensions I had is like Saudi Arabia and OPEC, we're not going to stand for it all that long. And over the weekend, you saw what happened. And people will say, well, wait a second, they can't do that. Well, yes, they can, number one. And, you know, for you playing our home game, we basically did the same thing when we tapped into the SPR. Now, I truly hope the administration started to buy back some barrels. My sense is they didn't. As a matter of fact, I heard, I think, over the weekend or a few days prior, somebody from the administration, I think it was from the Energy Department, saying it would take years to fill back the SPR, which I find fascinating. Clearly, they need a trader in those seats. But with all that said, you know my stance on energy stocks for a long time. You know, I was surprised at how resilient they were, and they have been despite the fact that crude went below 70 for a period of time. And now you have the OIH back to 300 bucks ish You have ExxonMobil within a couple dollars of its all-time high. And a lot of these levered names are off to the races. You look at Oxy, a name that Warren Buffett continues to buy. I think he's got a 23% stake now, if not larger. So yeah, energy's in play. And to the latter part of your question, of course it makes the Fed's job that much more difficult because as you mentioned, gas prices have actually started to tick up before this move. And I think you're going to continue to see that. So a difficult job just got that much more difficult over the weekend. You know, Liz, we've talked about the, the term stagflation a lot. Our good friend and co-host on Friday's OTT, Danny Moses, has been talking about stagflation for 18 months now and the potential for it and what it would mean for risk assets. And as we think about Friday's jobs report, okay, and you think about the fact that we saw last month unemployment rate tick up from a 53-year low to 3.6%. Even if we see unemployment rate tick up, but we start seeing some of these other inflationary pressures that had moderated, right? We see them starting to pick back up. That is the definition in a way of stagflation. And we really have started to see consumer behavior moderate a bit, right? Over since the SVB thing, I think a good old fashioned bank run is, is enough to kind of cause consumers to take a little bit of pause. Talk to us about this whole idea of stagflation and then bring it back to kind of risk assets. Because here we are on Monday morning and shortly after the open, and we have the S&P 
up 30 bips. You know what I mean? The Nasdaq's down a little bit. And you'd think that everything going on in the oil patch and this whole notion that China is driving a wedge between us and many of our long-term allies, which would be Saudi Arabia, where we thought we had some sort of arrangement with them to help us battle this inflation problem, right? It just seems like things are getting a bit messier week by week here. Yeah. All right. So starting with the oil thing, I think one of the the things that happened a couple of weeks ago is that the oil prices had been in the range where the Biden administration had said we would buy and we would start to refill. They didn't do it. Why didn't they do it? Because they don't have money to do it. They hit the debt ceiling in January. They can't issue any more debt to make cash. They haven't started those negotiations yet. They, they heat up in April because budgets are due, but it probably doesn't actually come to fruition until June. So they may not even be able to buy at those prices. Now they're going to hear criticism that they didn't do it. Now it looks like they missed the boat. If they do have to refill, they have to do it higher and so on and so forth. The second thing I'll say about oil, which we have not talked about in a while since it spiked last year, the year before, is that remember, one of the things that usually always precedes a recession is a spike in oil prices. Now, this one was kind of manufactured in the sense that obviously an announcement and a control about supply is what's making it go up. But if it can, continues to go up in the face of higher demand, lack of supply, that's not a good sign for the economic cycle going forward. And then you just add that to the list of things that we have to worry about and of the signals that we have to worry about. That said, I am going to venture a guess that in April, now that this has happened, in April, as we hear from Fed officials, as we get some headlines that come out before the May meeting, the focus will no longer be so much on what they call the super core, because that takes out energy and food. And once again, we'll hear them start talking about headline inflation because it includes energy. And if that becomes a big player, then headline inflation is something that they're going to be watching and talking about much more than they were before. So that kind of all feeds into if we're no longer watching that super core and we're watching headline, there's still quite a few problems in that number. And then the expectations of the Fed continuing to hike and the expectations of monetary policy continuing to tighten don't get any better for the market, not to mention the Fed's own forecast of unemployment by the end of this year is above, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, above 4%, I want to say 4.1%. That's a pretty big jump from here. And one thing I would mention to everybody, if you take a 12-month average of the unemployment rate, once the current reading moves above that 12-month average, it's a pretty clear recession signal. We are literally right on top of it. The 12-month average is about 3.6. We're at 3.6. So if it moves above that, that's another signal. So add that to a spike in oil prices. And there's there's not a whole lot of positive stuff happening here for the stagflation picture. That seems to be like where we're going here. And we're going to talk about McDonald's and this kind of odd announcement that they sent all of their employees home and, and waiting for layoffs. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But guy, you know, going back to the oil patch, as we like to refer to the stocks there, the XLE, and we know 43 or so percent of that is Chevron and Exxon. You know, it was down about 20 percent from its November high at its recent lows just a week or so ago. It's had this huge bounce from about 76 to almost 87. This is just in, you know, since those lows two weeks ago. Talk to us a little bit about, I, I know that your, your thesis has been to reload, buy on dips. The valuations look really attractive. You know, you think these companies are being run much better here. It's kind of a tough chase here, would you say, after such a big rally on an unexpected yeah, no, that's move fair. in the I, I agree with you. The volatility obviously is there. I'll tell you, I think the XLE if I'm not mistaken, made an all-time high this time or June of 2014, north of 100. Not that that's 
all that important, but just for context is where we're trading now. And I would submit these are just much better companies now, significantly better companies with much better balance sheets and a lot more leverage. So I would submit they should be higher. As a matter of fact, all things being equal, they probably should be trading at all-time highs, and they're not. So we'll see. So to your point about chasing, no, I, I agree with you. You know, you don't chase something that's had a move like you had today. But I think if your thesis is energy is still a thing in 2023, which mine has been, I think EY probably agrees, then you got to stay with it here. You're going to get faked out a number of times, but these are just better companies, better valuations, and the environment lends itself to that. Now, people will say, the bear argument is, wait a second, guy, you can't be bullish energy if we're on the brink of a global recession, which I totally get. But there's still all kinds of supply demand imbalances out there in the energy space, and they're just better companies. So I think the same way you're seeing home builders, and I'm not equating the two in terms of what they do, but the same way you're seeing home builders all flirting with all-time highs in a backdrop that doesn't make a lot of sense is the same way you're seeing a lot of these energy stocks now flirting with all-time highs actually an environment that does make a little sense. Yeah, so Liz, to that point, about a month ago, on March 3rd, the OIH was trading, you ready for this, $330, and about a week or so ago, it was trading at $253, okay? And I think Guy kind of spelled it out a little bit. That was basically, I guess, reflecting the potential for a recession here, right, and maybe a recession abroad. It was kind of discounting that. Now you have this big rip back towards 300 in the OIH, like, how do you see this space? And I know that you're not one to kind of chase after a big move, but thematically, the way Guy just laid it out, can these stocks work in a, an environment that's starting to price a, a greater likelihood of a recession, at least here and then possibly abroad? Yes, I think they can. Now, that doesn't mean they'll be without a drop if we do confirm a recession or if there's a, a quarter where we have really bad earnings that come in or whatever the case may be, they'll still go down because they'll be guilty by association in that cyclicals category. However, I was a little bit more surprised that there weren't as many dip buyers on that drop in energy as there were dip buyers on a drop in other sectors, right? There were huge dip buyers in financials. That's a, that's a cyclical. There have been dip buyers in tech. A lot of those are, are decently cyclical. So I'm surprised by the absence of dip buyers there. And now it feels like you kind of missed it. To Guy's point, you probably see a few more pullbacks throughout this year. But I do think that the energy trade, if we have a recession that's shallow or brief, which is what most people are calling for, the energy trade can probably withstand that, especially if, to my point earlier, if that recession happens after the debt ceiling is resolved, then the administration can buy in that range if it falls down there in a recession and that floor becomes reality again. And that range is somewhere between 67 and 72 a barrel. So I think there is a good floor on the actual price of oil moving forward for the year. And the companies are still offering pretty shareholder-friendly options. I think that they can do well through even a rough patch. I just want to make one point here, and this is a bit geopolitical. And when it comes to oil, this is obviously top of mind here. But I think it was last month, you know, the Chinese um, reestablished diplomatic ties between the Saudis and the Iranians. And and, and think about everything that we've gone through with Iran and, and trying to kind of battle their nuclear ambitions and the sanctions that we had and then the deal that we had and then Trump pulling us out of that deal. China is obviously serving as a wedge here. And here was an article. So it's 
from CNN. This was last week. Saudi Arabia this week moved closer to joining a Chinese-led economic bloc, having been granted the status of dialogue partner in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, as extends its global outreach. I mean, think about what's going on right here. And to Guy's point that they had this great trade tapping the SPR, right? When it was, I think oil was above, you know, 85 or 90. They had crude below 70. They must know how long it would take to refill that strategic petroleum reserve. And the fact that they didn't do it, and the Chinese right now are, are moving in here. The Saudis, again, you know what I mean, are looking at this and saying, listen, we've kind of played along a little bit for a while here, did our part after the reopening in the pandemic, but it's really, we're going to get back to doing what we do, which is obviously making sure that oil is at a price where they can ma maximize the amount of money that they have on their like dwindling supplies. In all of that, and people have been talking about this literally for the last 50 years about US dollar no longer being the reserve currency for the world. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because it's been out there for decades. But everything you've just talked about, again, is part of this narrative, getting away from the US dollar as a reserve currency. And it does not happen overnight, but that's the framework. These are the foundations being built. So if you really start to read around the edges and stuff and sort of dig a little bit deeper, if you really want to get down in the weeds, look at some of the stuff that Kyle Bass talks about. That's what we're looking at here. So it happens slowly then all at once, but don't discount for a second what the end goal here is, Dan. All right, let's talk about this McDonald's headline over the weekend that they're closing their U.S. offices, having all their employees work from home. Again, these are tens of thousands of employees in the front of layoffs. Liz, talk to us about just the, this sort of announcement in corporate America. This is obviously a huge employer. It's also a huge consumer-facing company. And, you know, it, it, there was a time where it seemed like a lot of the layoffs seemed very focused on large platform companies, that sort of thing. It seems to be working its way through rank and file sort of workers here, when you see this sort of headline as a strategist, what does it make you think? Because sometimes it's the signaling from some of the massive companies in our country that give the permission structure for other companies, right, that want to do this sort of thing, but they're trying to kind of be gingerly here, especially consumer facing companies. Yeah, I don't feel like this was gingerly at all. Like send everybody home and then say, we're going to tell you in the next three days how the rest of your employment here looks. And, you know, I, I can't make comments on the individual stock itself. I will say I am a McDonald's consumer. I love the cheeseburgers. I love the fries. I, I do it unapologetically. However, to your point, that's exactly how I felt when I saw this headline that, all right, we had kind of explained a way that tech needed to cut costs. They were so bloated. Even some of the communications names, small, you know, smaller companies, whatever, everybody that had grown during the zero interest rate policy, and they needed to cut their bloat, but we've sort of realized maybe it doesn't affect the labor market as much as we thought. And I have continued to say, whether to myself out loud, to my analysts, to you guys, whoever, once it bleeds into some of these other sectors, that's when it becomes more contagious. And I mean contagious in the sense of layoffs begin in an industrial sector, or they begin in a consumer sector, or a really big company like a McDonald's where then it starts to persist. And here's the other thing about McDonald's. This is not a luxury brand, right? This is not, this isn't necessarily a brand that is for a small portion of the population. This is an affordable product, right? This is something sort of in that staple sense of fast food. 
this is something that if people are strapped for cash, they're still probably going to buy McDonald's. So the fact that a company like this is hurting and has to do layoffs, I think, is a big signal. So as we speak, McDonald's is trading north of 280, all-time highs, according to facts that they report on April 25th. So you have a few weeks left there. People will knock McDonald's on valuation. That's been the knock on McDonald's since we started doing fast money. I still like the stock. It's a margin story, and clearly they're going to do what they can do to continue to keep margins in line. I'll say this to sort of dovetail EY's comment. I think it was probably, Dan, if I'm not mistaken, 1993 or 94, my buddy Tony Grasso and I had just seen Stevie Ray Vaughan somewhere in Midtown, and we were walking back to my apartment, and there was actually a walk-up McDonald's window somewhere on 8th Avenue, I think probably if I'm not mistaken, in the 50s or so, and I ordered 23 hamburgers, I said, I tell you what, I'll take 23 of whatever you have, cheeseburgers and or hamburgers, by, I want to say, 2 a.m., all but two of those burgers had been eaten. And I'll say this, the aftermath was not pleasant, but I will tell you, predominantly by me, I would say out of the 23, so 21, I was probably 14-ish. Oh, God. You know how like a bunch of the rap stars, they have their order that they kind of put on an advertisement on TV. There's been a couple of those in the last few years. My order, if I was a rap star, would be quarter pound of a cheese, 10 piece chicken McNugget with barbecue sauce, fries and an orange drink. Liz, what do you got? Oh, my God. I'm just a cheeseburger and small fry gal, which is actually called the All-American oh, Meal. Stop it. And it's You're the way embar- to order oh, wow. a Happy Meal as an adult. You're embarrassing yourself. I mean, maybe they oh. call it in the Midwest. <laughs> There ain't no friggin' all-American meals in, the, in New York or the tri-state yeah, there area. Is. I guarantee you, you can go up to a McDonald's counter and order. It's not on the menu, but you can order it and they know exactly what You know what? what I'm going to fill my ass walking into a McDonald's at some point <laughs> and, and asking for an all-American meal. All right, let's talk Tesla here really quickly. They announced their deliveries. They fell short of Elon Musk's goal. I think he was targeting 430000 They came in at 423 or so, just below that. And what's interesting about that is we know that there was a bunch of price cuts here, right? So if there's they're falling short of their own internal goals in, 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 in short of consensus, and they're selling less cars at lower ticket prices, right? Because we know that they've had two price cuts here. If this is a margin story, you just said McDonald's is a margin story. If this is a margin story, we've been talking about it last year. I think, you know, gross margins were 25 and a half percent, which for the auto industry is phenomenal, right? But expected to go to 22%. I think it was Morgan Stanley a week or two ago was suggesting that they might have a hard time having 20% margins. You know, the stock is down, what, 5% or so today. It was up like six and a half, seven percent on Friday in to the expectation of this. And, and again, you know, maybe crude oil up this this much, you know, kind of helps the, the narrative a little bit of Tesla. But guy, just quickly, like thoughts on this. We're all familiar with Elon not hitting some of his targets. And you could say, yeah, 7,000 cars here or there, not a big deal. But 7,000 cars after two price cuts in, in, you know, here in the US and obviously in China, you know, if that is a trend, right, if we're seeing deceleration in demand, even at lower prices, that's not a good thing for this stock that obviously trades at a a multiple that doesn't make sense for an auto, in my opinion. So through that vertical specifically, you're right. And I think for legacy automakers, I think margins to your point around 16% and a couple, probably longer than a few months ago, probably six months ago or so, Tesla came out and said, look, we are going to trend down towards legacy automakers, but we should still be greater than them. So when I'm reading the tea leaves, 
their margins probably settle in around 18 or 19 percent, which is still deceleration from where we are. And then the question is, how much are you willing to pay for this? In terms of trading the stock, I've been wrong a lot. I've been right a couple of times. But on March 10th, I believe, it got down to that 165 level that we had flagged for a while. Now, here's how you have to look at it. You know, Do we get back to that sort of 217, 218 level or we failed again? If we failed, then we have a couple of lower highs here, which is something you have to take into consideration. It certainly appears that way today. So that 165 level, which was support, we bounced nicely off of it. Now, if we start to show weakness, given that this much anticipated weekend number, we probably visit 165 again, Dan. All right, Liz, let's talk a little bit about this jobs report expected on Friday here. And I just want to mention this on the heels. I just in my inbox, the book report from our good friend Peter Bookfar at Bleakley Advisors. He's talking about U.S. manufacturing as measured by the ISM remained very weak in March as its index fell to 46.3 from 47.7 and below the estimate of 47 and a half. What's your take generally on some of the data that we're starting to get? We just talked about how some of these layoffs are moving from these tech platform companies. We've seen Triple M in manufacturing. Now we're seeing sort of line workers possibly at a McDonald's, but obviously they're going to be cutting white collar jobs too. When we think about you know manufacturing and, and then you put this together with PCE that we saw last week and then what we might see from the jobs report, how, how are you thinking about the data here? Because the stock market with the NASDAQ 100 up 20% of the year and the S&P 500 up 7 and a half percent on the year are kind of saying it's on we're, we're back on here you know what i mean we've already discounted last year's losses in equities discounted whatever recession you may bring us this year the job stuff there's a warning period that every state has to follow when you're going to go through layoffs and that warning period is usually 60 days some states are longer i believe california is 90 something like that so there's going to be a lagged effect between when you see headlines and when it actually occurs or when it shows up in initial jobless claims or whatever, which I think is part of why this has taken a little bit longer to come out in the data. I don't expect this week's job jobs report to suddenly show some kind of terrible contraction in the labor market because naturally you do see it in job openings first and the jolts haven't really quite broken yet. So I would still expect it to show up in jolts before we see it in the actual employment report. That being said, when you think about you know the inflation data that's come in and some of the other data like PMI, which I tweeted while you were talking, it's not always different this time. And yes, our economy is less dependent on manufacturing. And I think there's some people out there, and I would say this to our listeners, be careful that you're not practicing cognitive dissonance. And what I mean by that is you look at something like the PMI data, which is very manufacturing based, right? You could say, well, it doesn't really matter. Yes, it's in contraction, but our economy is so dependent on technology, so manufacturing doesn't matter like it used to. Okay, if you say that our economy is so dependent on technology, then how do you explain why all the cuts that have happened in tech are good, right? You don't, you don't get to explain just the way that you want the data to look. So if it's so dependent on tech, tech is kind of in a world of hurt when it comes to corporate structure, when it comes to the revenue growth that they may see, the resources that they have available. So manufacturing data does matter. It's the activity in the economy. It does affect things like capacity utilization, which is a big signal for contraction as well. So keep in mind some of these PMI numbers still, still moving downward. First of all, not a good sign. 
Second of all, have now been in contraction for a while, and it would be highly unlikely to see them stay in contraction, pop back out of contraction, and the rest of the economy is just fine. Before we get out of here, let's hit Mike Wilson. So every Monday over at Morgan Stanley, he is their head strategist, and he is also their CIO. He puts a report out. It's much followed. Mike actually, by the way, is going to be on our Friday on the tape pod, uh, so be sure to check that out. But he's doubling down on his bearish thesis. Wilson said the rotation is taking place partly because tech is being viewed as a traditional defensive sector. Though he disagrees uh, with the thesis, he sees utilities, staples, and healthcare as having a better risk-reward profile. We advise waiting for a durable low in the broader market before adding to tech more aggressively as the sector typically experiences a period of strong outperformance post-trough, a time when its cyclicality works in favor on the upside. All right, Guy, talk to me. We just said, you know, the NASDAQ's up 16%. The NASDAQ 100, which is heavily weighted towards those massive mega caps, is up 20%. And the S&P, which all those top five or six mega cap names make up about 25% of the weight, is up 7.5% here. So here we are. We have a VIX that's still below 20 on a Monday, uh, the first trading day of Q2 here. We have an S&P, as soon as the market opens, guy it just ripped banks ripped i I, is the banks catching a bid over the last couple of days is that giving you a little more comfort or does it make you really want to lean into this because i can't imagine that any of these large money center banks which really get earnings season kicked off on april 14th are going to have a whole heck of a lot of great things to say so i'll take the banks first my instincts suggest that the quarter is going to be in line to slightly worse. The guidance is not going to be good. Almost by definition, it's not going to be good. And I'll say this, and I've said it on a couple different shows, interest rates could go back down to zero magically. Yet credit conditions, I believe, will remain tight or get tighter. So going to technology, think about this for a second. A highly cyclical industry, very capital intensive, right? Trading at valuations that were rich when rates were zero, And probably some of these stocks have gotten themselves as expensive, if not more expensive than they were. So why in the world would you look at this? Now, I understand the momentum going on here, and momentum can be a very powerful thing. And stocks going higher, if you're long, the reasons why typically don't matter if you're making money. But just understand that all we've seen over the last couple months, in my opinion, in this space is basically multiple expansion. Nothing has magically gotten better. As a matter of fact, things have gotten worse. So when capital is going to be more difficult, the cyclicality is going to kick in. You know, the economy is clearly slowing down and valuations that don't make sense. You explain to me how these stocks should continue to go higher. Yeah. So Liz, we got an email over the weekend, or I did from someone who's a you know longtime listener, and I really appreciate his commentary. He pings us every so often. And he said that he thought we did a 180 by, I think by identifying, and we've been doing this fairly consistently, Guy, on Market Call. And Liz, you've been obviously participating with us on that and, and obviously on here on the pod, but just talking about how the technicals are, are have been lining up pretty well. If I could divorce some of my fundamental views, the top-down macro and some of the kind of bottoms-up micro on a single stock or sector basis, you know, if I could divorce that and just look at the technicals like our friend CBW does, I'd say that the NASDAQ chart is breaking out. It looks constructive. It looks like it made a bottom here, you know, but I I guess what I can't do is get away from what I feel is going to happen to the economy if and when we do get to 4%, if we do have a global recession that's caused by a stagflationary environment 
environment. So to me, you know, when people say, when are you going to change your tune? Or, you know, guy, you and I hear that a, a lot, right? People watch our sound bites on Fast Money. They listen to us long form in interviews like this with really smart strategists like Liz. And we stick to our guns. And you always say, don't be dogmatic. But right now, I kind of feel like I have to. I'm not your hedge fund manager. I'm not your RIA. I'm not like a, a big strategist for a big shop. I'm not a stockbroker. I don't have to change my tune. And, and if anything, if you don't like what I'm saying, you disagree with it, well, then use it as an input. You know, use me as your contrary indicator or whatever. But I guarantee you a lot of the stuff that we've just spent over the last half an hour talking about, if you think it's all bearish and you're really bullish, I guarantee it's going to be helpful over the next few months. So Liz, talk to me a little bit how you're thinking about your cautious stance on the broad market despite the fact that you have been bullish on many specific sectors within the broad market? Well, first of all, I am a strategist at a shop. I don't feel compelled to have to change my stance either because of that. I still use the data that's out there and how I feel the market still needs to move in order to come back in line. Here's what I would say, though, in response to Mike's comments. I am not convinced that tech needs to make a new low. A lot of times I talk about the broad market in a recessionary environment, it does have to get down below 30%. Tech did already in 2022. I don't know that it needs to make a new low. Does it need to come off of these valuation levels? Probably. And if we go into recession and the economy hits the skids, it likely will, right? Some of the froth needs to come out. However, it may still hold up better than the cyclical parts of the market. And that should make sense as well. So there are probably, you know, the S&P likely needs to get back down at least to prior lows, something like that in a recessionary environment. Tech could hold up a little bit better. But the other thing I would say about tech, and this is going to sound slightly bullish, it's it's not, but I want to make it clear. Tech is always going to trade at a valuation premium to a lot of those cyclicals. You're paying for growth. You're paying for the longer term. It's going to be more expensive. Right now, I think it looks quite extended and it looks way too expensive. I don't think that this is a good entry point, but it's usually going to be more expensive. So that being said, I look forward very much to the time when we can record this, regardless of where you guys are on the spectrum of bullish to bearish. I look forward to the time where I can get bullish and say, this is it. This is the time where this looks really attractive. We had our flush. We had the drawdown. We had the confirmation that the recession is here or is imminent. And then we can talk about what we can actually buy. This is a really frustrating time for me in the sense that I'm with you, Dan. I still feel quite cautious because of what all the signals have said and the way that the market has moved in the opposite direction. That doesn't feel good to me. I'm looking for what else can I buy besides gold, treasuries, money market funds, right? Where do I feel comfortable telling people to go? I can't wait for the day where I can talk about a bunch of other stuff to go into. I look forward to Mondays with EY. I look forward to our Thursday market call with EY when she drops her note and she has that wry smile knowing she's going to rile me up. I'm looking forward to Ranger playoff hockey. Dan, I'm also looking forward to the conversation we're about to have with Caleb Silver of Investopedia. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. 
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On the Tape. We're joined today by Caleb Silver. He is the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. And Guy Adami, as you would say, this is one cool cat. You know, I he's- dig Caleb. Can I tell you something? I dig him for a variety of reasons, not least of which he knew Melissa Lee before I, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. Well, well Caleb, welcome two on the tape. So good to be here. And yes, I do know Melissa Lee all the way back in the early part of the 2000s. I'm her biggest fan. I know you guys are huge fans as well, but no bigger fan than me. Well, we've met you on the set of Fast Money. You come on regularly to talk about a lot of the work that you do over there at Investopedia. Um, we're going to talk about your your most recent investor survey because I, I always find those like absolutely fascinating. But guy, I was going to say, and I think you know this. I mean, this guy, as you would say, is one cool cat. I mean, he yes. shows up at the NASDAQ for Fast Money. He's always got, you know, a nice tight fitting suit, like kind of John Wick looking and everything like that. Oh, but, wait a second. But, Who? but don't worry about it. But he oh. rolls up on a longboard, uh, on a on a skateboard. Right, that's I'll like, hold, slow down for a second. All right, I let you get the John Wick thing in. I have no idea what you're talking about. What is a longboard exactly? Help Caleb, me. please, please describe. The longboard is a long skateboard. That's the original you know, California longboard. I like to cruise. That's how I roll from place to place. So yeah, I'm a 52 year old on a skateboard rolling all over New York City, NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, 30 Rock right in here to your studios. That's just how I get down. That's badass. I love that. Can I tell you something? I loved you before. I love you more now. I don't I don't know who John Wick is. I'm sure he's fine, but you're you're better. He's tall and handsome and I'm just uh, short and scrappy, but I that's how I roll. No, you're great. All right. L- listen, before we kind of get into the survey and some of the stuff that uh, and again, this stuff is really relevant. I mean, I, I think that you watch a lot of financial TV, you participate in a lot of financial media. You know, there's a lot of confusion in 2023 about like what the markets, the stock market in particular are doing versus what people's perception of the economy, um, the health of S&P earnings, the way yields are moving around. Listen, everything, every risk asset is moving around like crazy. Just look at FX and everything like that. And the stock market just keeps going higher. So we're recording this on the last day of Q1 here. And the NASDAQ looks like it's set to close up 18% on the year. The S&P up more than um, 5%. So we're kind of raging into the close of the quarter. Um, But it seems like some of your survey work is saying that there's a little bit of, um, I don't know, trepidation about the, the pace in which stocks are moving. You know, Guy would call that, what, what would you call that guy? Climbing a what? Uh, I don't even, please don't say it. I, I, I woke up in a great mood. The Yankees won yesterday, five zip. Again, I know this drops on Monday. That was Thursday. 
Garrett Cole was lights out. So Judge don't even do the wall the worry thing is what so, you're saying. Okay, just don't do that wall worry shit with me because it, it, you know it just really gets under my skin. All but right, please. so let, let, let's quickly before we get to all that, let's talk about Investopedia because I think it's one of those sites that if you are in markets, it's like you end up finding yourself there at least once a day as you're kind of going in there and trying to figure something out. And I assume that if you're not in markets, you're probably there a lot more. If you're just interested in markets, it's your hobby or you just kind of, you know, get your statements, you know, whether it is once a week or whatever, and you find yourself in. Talk to us a little bit about the history of Investopedia, how it's kind of transformed, because it is one of these digital properties in our business that I feel like it's been ever present for like as long as I've been in the business. Yeah. And it probably has. We were founded in 1999, believe it or not, in Edmonton up in Alberta by four Canadian guys who had a really good idea at the time, which was all these people were interested in internet stocks. All these people were interested in the pets.com and the AOLs of the world. And they were trying to, starting to trade for the first time. These guys said, why don't we put a dictionary of financial and investing terms on the internet? There's this company down in Mountain View, California. A couple of Stanford guys are trying to index the whole internet. Maybe if we put the dictionary online, plus some test prep, for the series exams, maybe people will come to our site and maybe this site Google or whatever it's called will point to us. Great idea in 1999. They grew the site, uh, sold it to Forbes a few years later. Forbes had it for several years, went through a couple other hands, and then IAC, Interactive Corp, bought it about eight or nine years ago. It was in the portfolio there. That's when I noticed it. I was leaving CNN at the time, and I said, this is a site I grew up with. Why is this in IAC's portfolio? I have a ton of respect for IAC and the companies they've built. And I, I looked into it, and sure enough, they thought that they, that company fit into their sort of SEO model, had a future in publishing, and I came on as the editor-in-chief about seven-plus years ago. But we have gone from being that dictionary and that test prep site to being the place where you can get questions about everything about money. we got about 40,000 articles and definitions on the site, FAQs. It's a reference site. It's an educational site. But we've also grown it more because we realize we attract a lot of investors who have questions. And in that way, we're able to sort of track investor sentiment. What are investors thinking about? What do they want to learn about? What are they fearing? What are they excited about? So we do a lot of that. So we've gone from being the place to get all your questions answered to really having our finger on the pulse of what individual retail investors are feeling here in the United States, but also Canada, anywhere people speak English and are investing across the planet. They come to Investopedia to get an answer. They don't browse. They come for a specific reason. And that intent, that intention that people have to get an answer to a question, whether it's what's the difference between a Roth IRA and a 401k, how do I invest 10 grand? What's the best way to value a company? What is a descending triangle pattern? You name it, they're coming for very specific reasons. Well, Caleb, that FAQ sounds dirty. I didn't realize you were that kind of site, but I'll digress for a second and ask you the following question. Investor sentiment, it's all about that, right? Emotion drives markets. And when investors are feeling emboldened, you know, things typically go well. Speak to us about how you guys track that. Yeah, so we have a bunch of different ways. One is just pure search, right? People come to us through Google, through Bing, whatever their browser is, because they have a question and they're typing something in, and we have a lot of results that rank very highly. We've been around a long time, and we have a lot of content, and people trust us, which is great. So that's just one way of just saying, what are people looking for today, yesterday, this quarter? And we have a great list of things we track every day, every week, every quarter, every year. So there's that. Then there's also what we call our anxiety index, which is measuring fear in the market by search-based volume around fear terms. So fear around the economy, 
fear around the markets, fear around personal finances. So that's about 15 different keywords. And when those spike outside of their normal range, we track this in an index that goes all the way back before the last financial crisis to see where, when those terms are popping and why. That's the anxiety index. And as you can imagine with the bank situation lately, concerns about inflation, concerns about recession, and even through this rally that everyone loves to hate, the fear is there, the anxiety is there, but it's really centered around personal finances. Is my money safe? Am I going to get foreclosed on, et cetera? And then we do our thing that I come on Fast Money on, which is a sentiment survey to our newsletter readers. About a million and a half people get an email from Investopedia, one of our newsletters every day, Term of the Day, The Express, The Market Sum, the, the Midday email, and we ask them, how are you feeling? Bullish, bearish? What are you scared of? What are the things that scare you the most? Also, what would you do with an extra 10 grand if you had it? Where would you put that? I love that question because it's like, ah, an extra 10 grand? That gets people thinking. So in that way, we're putting our finger on the pulse of what people are feeling. And our readers, because we engage with them, love to answer those questions. So we have a really good ongoing survey that's been happening since right around the pandemic, when right when that began about three years ago. Well, let's hit your latest one. It was March 15th. Individual investors still skittish amid persistent inflation and bank worries. That was in the throes of this bank crisis that we have. I can't wait to hear about your next survey. Like that's kind of in the wake of whatever just happened here and, and whether it's still going on and, and kind of how that kind of shifts in sentiment. But what were some of the big takeaways from this most recent survey? People are worried, as you can imagine, but also our readers who are individual investors who love putting money to work, they're kind of promiscuous too. So you got this worry on the one hand, 49% say they're somewhat worried about recent market events, 31% expect more losses, only about 11% were expecting gains. And this closed right as the banking crisis was unfolding. And a lot of people, as you can imagine, you know it in the numbers and in the money flow, leaning hard into money markets, leaning hard into CDs. That's there's money in the bank now, so they feel a little bit more secure with that. But you still have a lot of people, about more than 50%, saying they're going to wait this out and see how things develop. On the other hand, you still have 43% that want to buy the dip, that want to put money to work really badly. They're looking, as the boss would say, for a reason to believe. Caleb, it sounds like these four dudes from Edmonton, I'm assuming they were all guys, ripped off Mel Brooks back in the day. As you know, high anxiety, man. I got to tell you something. Madeline Kahn is the absolute shit. I mean, I say she could read the phone book and I would laugh, but... Where is the anxiety index? Is it high anxiety right now? I mean, is it a number? Is it a numerical thing? And if it is, where does it stack up historically? Yeah, so anything above 100, we consider to be high anxiety, relatively high. We're about a 112, 113 handle right now, but it's not around the markets. As I said, we track the anxiety around market activity, bear market, you know, correction, words like that. But we also track it around personal finance. That is, is my money safe? What is foreclosure? What is forbearance? How much money do I need? People worrying about things like that, certainly worried about the banking situation. When we look at what's been people have been searching for, it's how safe is my money? How safe is my 401k? Why isn't my money protected over a certain amount? So they're asking questions about that. Their anxiety is very personal at the moment, not market-centric. And it's not macro-centric as much as it used to be. Three weeks ago, we would have been worried about inflation. We were worried about a recession. These numbers kept coming in higher. We didn't know what the Fed was going to do. We know a lot of these things now. That said, people are still not very secure in their personal finances for obvious reasons. You know, it's interesting. About an hour ago, I just texted Guy 
the promised land by the boss, uh, a, a version of it. Cause we, in, in the break last night, what were we, we were talking about harmonica players, underrated harmonica players. Bruce, yeah. Neil Young. I mean, it's incredible. There are a lot of them out there, man. The guys that can play the harp, they just rock. I'm just, I'm just saying, I mean, think about Bob Dylan, them, some of the shit that he was doing with the guitar and the harmonica. Sorry about that. Yeah. Dale. Well, a little bit. And listen, the boss is about to take over uh, New York city this weekend. I'm going to see him MSG on Saturday night, Barclays on Monday night. It's on. Let's talk about just the promised land for stocks here, because right now it kind of feels like it. You know, when you think about last year, Caleb, 2022, the S&P, I think at its lows was down 27, 28 percent, closed down about 20 percent. The Nasdaq was maybe down 35 percent, closed down about 30 out of the gates this year. It's just some of the hardest hit stocks were raging. I mean, at the end of January, we had stocks up and there were dozens of them up 30 percent or so at the end of this quarter. Right now, we have some of the biggest names, you know, Microsoft up about 20, Apple up about 25, NVIDIA, which is a really big NASDAQ name, you know, up, what, 60% or so. I mean, I guess the, the question is, do investors think that those sorts of moves in some of the biggest names in the entire market are sustainable here? Like, because for them to continue to go for the balance of this year, we are going to basically be back at new highs, If even if you wanted to tone it down from here. You know what I mean? What is your sense as far as sentiment right now? Because you just mentioned a month or two ago, we were most worried about inflation. I think all of us feel like that's kind of under control, at least the major readings here. Is it just kind of risk back on? Yeah. I, well, you, you talked about Microsoft. You talked about Apple a little bit. I think we talked about this on Fast Money a couple of weeks ago. This is These are almost like safety plays right now. These have almost become safe havens. So when we look, we also ask our our readers, what are your you know your top 10 holdings? They're going to look a lot like the S&P 500 or even the NASDAQ 100, which to your point is up about 17, 18% already this year. So they're very interested in big stocks. They like the home cooking and they want to keep putting money to work in the names that have delivered for them over time. So it's the big stocks that are taking off, but also some of the big beaten beaten down stocks. And, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, when everything was going up and risk was fully on and we were in meme stock mania and we were in crypto bonanza land, you know, people were aggressively putting money to work. Traffic was off the charts. Now people are like, I want to get back in. I want to keep investing where can I safely allocate money to equities? They're going to their favorite. You know, we started this podcast. It was January of 2021. Okay. So Danny Moses, our co-host, um, you know, he's got a specific expertise as it is, is kind of finding the next big short. That's how we met him actually in 2019 on the set of Fast Money. And, you know, Guy and I, I think our commentary, and you've been on with us enough, you know, we look at financial media and we think about this universal, it seems universal bullishness that exists, right? Whether it's from the Wall Street infrastructure that recommends stocks, whether it's from financial media in general, we think our value is trying to pick apart what whatever the consensus view is. And at the time, back in Q1 of 2021, we were all fairly convinced that the excitement that arose out of all the monetary and fiscal stimulus during the pandemic for risk assets, right? People left at home, that whole Reddit thing, the, the Robin Hood thing, easy access, you know, SPACs, unprofitable tech, Kathy Wood. I mean, 
NFTs, crypto, like we just all knew that was a bubble. Okay. Putting your finger on it is really hard. How in the moment do you guys find a lot of the search queries, all the surveys that you do, all this stuff? Can you, as a long-term market participant and market pundit, can you kind of get a good sense for that? Like does your data at Investopedia, a lot of the stuff that the search terms and the sentiment surveys and stuff like that, is that giving you a good sense real time for like kind of like market bubbles or just also when it's just absolute despair on the flip side of that, like we had in October last year? Absolutely. And I can look right now and look at what people are looking for at the moment, but I also get a, a rundown every day of what people were looking for yesterday. And then we look and we and we actually weigh the traffic on these terms. How big is that spike outside of its normal seven-day range? So you get this animal spirits going on like you guys see every day, like we see across the media and across investing with retail investors, which is take the bank stocks, for example. When the, when the banking crisis was in full swing last week, hopefully that was the biggest swing we'll get, but we'll see. When that was in full swing in the past two weeks, you get people looking at, oh, what are the top bank ETFs? Because maybe they want to buy the dip there, but also how do, what are the inverse? What are the ways to really short the banking stock? So you get this push-pull of investors that wanting to go after something that's been hit hard and investors that want to stay away from something that's been hit pretty hard. But also, even this week, all the talk about you know the potential decline of the U.S. dollar and Saudi Arabia and China signing a deal, some of the top searches this week were, what are bricks? How do I buy the Chinese yuan? People are asking very specific questions about taking action given the news. Now, sometimes that overwhelms our site with people asking very specific questions, whether it's about a recession, whether it's about the impact of interest rates or about you know the potential decline of the dollar. And sometimes it's very broad and you can tell it's a very personal question. Somebody has a specific need and they want to do something about it. But most of the time, again, we're talking about retail investors that want to invest. They are here to play. They want to put money to work. So you get that sense of are they feeling hot? Are they feeling cold right now? And who's way out on the edge trying to do something, you know, pretty daring, pretty risky, and who's pretty conservative? And you can pretty much break that down by age because we have readers 18 to 80. All right, Caleb, you guys have a financial literacy mission that this question will lend itself to. So these cats started this thing in 1999. My sense the searches then, and again, not to cast aspersions, is is my want to say. I mean, people are probably searching for what is the symbol for General Electric? What is a stock? I mean, pretty rudimentary stuff. Now, to your point, you have people searching for contingent convertible. I mean, think about that for a second. So it seems like you're being successful in your want to give people the, you know, the access to financial literacy. So speak to all that sort of the evolution of what you've seen. One of the top questions, believe it or not, on our site is, what is money? And I don't think that is as simple as, you know, what is this thing I'm carrying around in my wallet? But with the onset of cryptocurrency and digital money and you know the, what's happened really in the past five to 10 years, that is a very metaphysical question. So you get that a lot. And then you kind of know just from doing this year after year, oh, it must be Econ 101 season because we're getting a lot of searches for SWOT analysis and macroeconomics and Keynes and, and stuff like that. But then you get the news-based searches, and that's what I pay most attention to because that's the world you guys live in as well. It's like, what's going on? How are people reacting to it? How are individual securities reacting to it? How do I take advantage of it? So we've gone from just being that reference site to wanting to extend beyond our site for the people that come to us, they're coming to us because they have a question. But what about kids? What about high school kids? What about kids going into college who are about to take on $32,000 on average in student debt, get their first credit card at that table when you walk around campus and get the Frisbee and the water bottle? Hey, you got a new credit card. They don't know how to operate around these things. So we're trying to educate people now 
uh, public school, elementary school, all the way through college, and then into their investing and finance career. So we're going school to school, public school districts around the country, creating curriculum and also giving it out for free so that we can get the lessons of money and how to build wealth and invest into kids' minds so they're ready for that and they're ready to deal with their financial futures when they get into and out of college. Well, you know what's interesting about that is, and again, I have teenage kids, it used to be that the introduction for us probably to like money and the financial system was a checking account, right? Your first job that you had in high school, and then it would move into a savings account. And and, and it seemed really boring, right? The idea that you had to go into a bank and you had to kind of have this little ledger, you know, that you'd fill out and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And then we had ATM cards, right? And that was probably when we were all in college. Right now, if you look at teenage kids, their introduction to the world of finance is actually through markets. Why? Because markets have become culture. They become sport, right? And so we've talked about this a lot, the gamification of uh, almost anything, right? It, it, for all intents and purposes. But, you know, whether these kids were, they saw something on the social media about some NFT PFP or something, and then they realized, well, it takes money to do that. Oh, but it's not real money. It's crypto money. How do I get my fiat into crypto so I can transact there? And then they started thinking about, oh, Elon Musk is pushing this shit coin. You know what I mean? Who's that guy? Oh, he's actually the CEO of, you know, one of the largest companies on, on the NASDAQ exchange. You know, so all that stuff has been kind of come full circle. But I think a lot of young people's entrance to the world of finance, like I just said, is through markets. And so when you think about your property called Investopedia, it's probably a great, I guess, foray. Talk to us a little bit about that because at one time, I'm sure people want financial information when they're in maybe difficult times, maybe during the pandemic, that was a thing. But then when they're YOLOing everything else, it really is about how do I make money in this sort of new financial world? Yeah, there's so many questions about that. It used to be, you know, we used to have a very popular uh, uh, term, how do I write a check? That hasn't gotten any traffic in so many years. We got a lot of buy now, pay laters. We got a lot of how Venmo works. We got a lot of questions around that. But I went and taught a fourth grade class a few months back, and the questions that were coming out of these kids' mouths were so advanced that I was taken aback. I, they were asking me very specifically about how Elon Musk could use money from Tesla to buy Twitter. Is that illegal? Was the 420 tweet illegal? Like they were into the news. They fourth knew, graders. Fourth graders, nine-year-olds. They knew what was going on. A lot of them had parents or uncles or people or older brothers and sisters that are involved. And they were asking me very specific questions. Even my 16-year-old daughter asked me very smart questions about how the market works. When I buy stock, where does that money actually go? You know, I had to unpack that for her because we have a custodian account and we go through it all the time. But she asked that very fundamental question. Nobody asked that question. Who gets that money? The company? Like, how does the whole thing work? So breaking it apart for people because they have this awareness, not only because money has become, you know, a much broader topic and it's not something that just mom or dad deals with. It's become a very core part of their lives. They have very smart questions and they want to get invested and they want to build wealth. I worry a little bit about our young people not understanding the value of a dollar. When we were kids... Um, um, you'd say, Mom, Dad, I'm going down to the mall and we're going to go see a movie. And they'd give you 10 bucks. And then so you'd spend 250 on a, t a slice of pizza and a Coke. And then you'd go to the arcade and you'd spend a few bucks. And then you had five bucks left for the movie ticket or something like that. And when it was out, it was out, right? That, that, that was it. So my kids now, they have an iPhone, okay? They have Venmo, they have Amazon, they have Uber, they have DoorDash, they have every sort of thing. And, and you know, how do you budget, right? Like, like these are really important things. And how do you know the value of 
of something versus something else. And, and you know, when money's up, the money's up. That's not a thing, like, really anymore. And I, and I worry about that. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons I'm so glad that Guy asked the question about financial literacy, because we get tons of questions from this, not just from, you know, young people, but there's a lot of people in their 20s, you know what I mean, who are trying to figure this all out. And for you to say the average kid has $32,000 in student debt, and they haven't been, had to pay anything on student debt in years, that's not going to be good for a whole host of like this generation who are trying to figure out budgeting, investing. I mean, so I'm just curious how you guys think about that. And do you see an opportunity there to really push that much harder, not just in financial literacy and education, but also maybe financial products? Yeah, that, that's a huge thing for us. So we have a stock simulator, a free stock paper trading simulator on our site. It's the most popular part of our site because people like to gamify, to your point. That's a place to learn how to trade. That's a place to learn how to do fundamental and technical analysis. People graduate from there to real online brokers. But we spend a lot of time on our site with those basics for kids, those fundamentals, wants versus needs. Where does the money come from? How do you, what are taxes? How does a bank work? So all these basics, these fundamentals that I think a lot of people have skipped over in their lives until they have to deal with it, we're trying to teach those early. And a lot of people are very receptive to that. High schools want to do this. About half the states in the country require it. But it's very difficult to get financial literacy and education into a curriculum because, like, what are you going to take out of that? That said, the principles of how wealth really works is super important, especially – and we've lived through this now since the last financial crisis, which is – you know, is the government just going to bail us out every time? The value of a dollar, the value of debt, the importance of debt, really understanding that, I think it's washed over because we're just so used to, you know, this lack of moral hazard that they don't get, they don't understand what happens when you default, what happens when you don't pay their bills. And you don't want people to get to that point in their life where they actually lose something valuable to them because they never learned that lesson. So we've taken that as our responsibility. We want to teach them how to invest. We want to teach them how to build wealth, but we really want to teach them the strong principles about money because if you don't know those you're going to lose everything. Dan talking about YOLO. I mean, I I thought it was like the cylindrical thing, the opposite of a ring thing. I, I you two were talking about checkbooks and YOLO and what was that other term you used before? I, mean, I had no idea what you guys, John Wick or somebody. I mean, you've totally lost me. That's why a lot of times, Caleb, not only am I a participant in this, but I'm a viewer or a listener as well. So before we get out of here, as they say, and I hate this term, but I'll use it. What are the hot takes of 2023? Yeah, I think you're still going to have this push-pull and animal spirits, but I think that the second half of the year, my hot take, looks a lot better. Just given all the noise we've had in the last quarter and the fact that the stock market's up, NASDAQ is screaming, you know, towards another bull market, I think that that's a decent sign. Also, you know, I think no matter what we think about how the Fed has done with handling inflation in terms of its interest rate rises, I think there's this settling of this is the way it's going to be for a while. We're never going back to that zero interest rate environment where money was free. But can we operate in a more stabilized financial environment in a, where money is a little bit more normalized and we understand a little bit better? Yeah, debt's high. There's going to be crisis after crisis. But I think the sense of fatigue for the last two or three years is waning and people want to put money back to work. So I'm optimistic about the second half of the year and hopefully the economy won't dip too low. All right, Caleb Silver, you are at Caleb Silver on Twitter and on Instagram. Follow Investopedia at 
Investopedia. And also, you ready for this, people? We are going to have a totally different conversation. We're going to turn the mics around. Guy and I are going to be on the Investopedia Express podcast with Caleb Silver. So go there. What, what, what should they do to the subscribe button there, Guy? Smash the shit out of it. And by the way, we're going to turn the mics around, Caleb, as opposed to wait for it. Turn the beat around by the great Vicky Sue Robinson for you playing our home game. Turn the beat around. You guys know it perfectly. It's an honor to be here with you. I love the Home and Away podcast. Folks, check out the Investopedia Express. We're going to refer folks back to here on all the great programming you do, but it is an honor to be with you. Thanks, Caleb. We really appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.